The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to start focusing on the Word and get past all the crummy, fuzzy details of the day and all the things that are going to happen tomorrow and put our focus on that which never changes. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we continue to thank you for all the things that you provide for us, all the things that occur in our lives, because we know that under your providential care that all of these things are directed for a purpose in our lives and that your desire is to mature us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we continue to study about the mechanics of spiritual growth and how we grow and mature, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, make them more clear to us, that we may more effectively apply these things in our life and that we may continue to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We started off in Hebrews 6, 7, and 8 with an illustration that is really a warning, uh, relates to the warning in Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, dealing with the dangers of falling away as a believer and beginning to turn from a passion for studying the Word, knowing the Word, and applying the Word. Hebrews 6-7 gives the illustration for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, we've gone through the details here. What I've done the last three or four weeks is take the concepts that we find in this verse, which has to do with production, how the soil is produced, I mean, how the fruit is produced uh, from the soil as a byproduct of the nutrients that go into it through the soil itself and the rain, and that you have two kinds of production that come out of the Christian life, that which is positive, which receives blessing, and that which is negative, which is judged or Discipline. And I started a study in which I was answering the question, how do we grow? How do we produce fruit? What is fruit? And one of the points that I made as we got into John 15:7, which is the, uh, where Jesus uses the vine, the grapevine, as an analogy of spiritual growth, is to emphasize the fact that fruit, when we look at how fruit is defined in the 
in the New Testament, fruit in a believer's life, it's not evangelism. It's not defined in terms of Christian service. Fruit is not defined in terms of of giving. It's not defined in terms of uh, how many people you witness to this week. It's not defined in those categories because those categories have to do with Christian service or our responsibilities in either our priesthood or our ambassadorship. So we have these uh, uh, priorities, these responsibilities that are ours because of who and what we are in Jesus Christ. At the instant of Christ, we become priests to God and royal ambassadors. Now, at that stage, when you're just a baby priest or baby ambassador, there's not a whole lot you can do in terms of working out those responsibilities. You have to learn and you have to grow. You have to learn what is involved in growth. You have to grow to become mature before you can effectively function in those areas. Notice, I, I, I want to make sure you understand that I inserted the adverb there, effectively function or fully function in those areas because we can all begin to function in different areas of our priesthood and ambassadorship when we are young believers. But as you grow and mature, then what happens is that you become more effective in your service in those areas of priesthood and ambassadorship. You know, some people get the idea, well, I'm going to wait till I'm mature before I start serving. No, that's not how it works. You have to, you, you start serving as you grow, but in different areas related to, uh, d- related to your particular spiritual age. That has to do with service. Fruit, on the other hand, has to do with character. And character is related to the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The character that is being produced in us is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen this in a couple of passages that we have looked at. So, we went from Hebrews 6, and the first area to illustrate by comparing Scripture with Scripture was the vine uh, analogy in John chapter 15. And the conclusion that we came to in John 15 was that in Jesus' terminology, abiding in Him was the sole and necessary requirement to produce fruit. If you're not abiding in Christ, you won't produce fruit. You have to abide in Christ to, do, to produce fruit. So believers are either abiding in Christ or they are not abiding in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, there's first growth that takes place, and then there is the fruit production. You have these different stages of growth, and you see that in the analogies, in these, in these agricultural analogies that are used over and over again throughout Scripture. Psalm 1 is, uh, is another one. We touched on that on Tuesday night. But you have them in Matthew 13, Luke chapter uh, 8. We went to those passages and we saw that there are different degrees of, of growth in different believers. Some just have a little bit of growth. They're just a seed. It falls on rocky soil. It germinates. It sprouts. It puts forth a little bit of growth and that's it. Then there are those that there's a little more growth. They fall on in the thorny soil, but there's more growth and then it gets choked out. And then finally there is the plant that grows to fruit production maturity, but even that produces different levels, some 100-fold, some uh, 50-fold, some 20-fold. It's different levels. So everybody, everybody is different. 
So we've gone through those passages already, and then at the end of our study the last time, I started looking at the mechanics. How is this fruit produced? What is our responsibility? What is God's responsibility? Because both are involved in this. We have certain responsibilities where our volition is engaged, and the Holy Spirit, who is the primary agent in sanctification, is also engaged. So where do we see these things separate, and how do they how do they fit together? So we began to look at some passages in Ephesians, and we in Ephesians chapter five, where it ends with the uh, verse that's familiar to many of us: "Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation." but be filled with the Spirit. And I connected this verse with Colossians 3.16. Now, just as a point of background that I'm not sure if I covered last time, Paul was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, and he wrote four prison epistles. That's what they're called because they were written when he was in prison. And he wrote one of those to Ephesus and one to the church at Colossae. And these were letters that were to be passed around. They say that within the letters. They would be passed around from not just those churches, but also Laodicea and other churches that were in the, in the area. So they were, he expected not just the Ephesian church and not just the Colossian church to read these epistles, but for, the, for, but for them to make copies and to share them with the other congregations. And he wrote them at the same time, and they're parallel to one another. Ephesians and Colossians are parallel to one another, so that if you're reading in Ephesians and it touches on one subject, you can flip over and look in Colossians, and a lot of times Colossians emphasizes it a little more. Sometimes you'll notice that in Ephesians, uh, it's it some some topic or some doctrine may be developed a little more or a little bit more is said. And when you look at the parallel in Colossians, there's only one verse, whereas Ephesians had two or three verses on it. So they 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 balance each other, they uh, blend together, and they complement one another. So when we look at uh, Ephesians 5:18 and its surrounding context, we see that it is very similar. Or the context of Ephesians 5.18 is very similar to the context of Colossians 3.16. What differs is the command. The command in Ephesians 5.18 is to be filled by means of the Spirit. I'll come back and talk about that, uh, the details of that in just a minute. Colossians 3.16 is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So what we have with this series of participles after the command to let the word of Christ dwell, these participles indicate the results of the indwelling of the word in your soul, in the mentality of your soul, as it has its impact on uh, on the way you live. Notice one of the consequences, one of the first consequences mentioned in both passages is admonishing or speaking Ephesians says speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs see singing is a part 
of the spiritual life. Singing praises to God is part of the spiritual life. In, in too many churches, singing almost is like, well, that's something we do. We just kind of tack on at the beginning on Sunday morning, and let's get through that and get to the real stuff, which is, uh, which is the teaching. And I've heard people say that. Why do we even sing? Well, it's part of what the Scripture says. It's, it's vital. On the other hand, you have people who they just they think that, that it's the Word of God, the, the teaching that has become per- peripheral, and real praise and worship is the singing. And let's go do that for 45 minutes and then just tack on a little sermonette at the end. And that is much worse because it is the Word of God that is powerful. It is the Word of God, Jesus said, that is the instrument of sanctification, the life of the believer. If you don't learn to think like God thinks, if you don't learn to understand what God has written to you as an individual, then how are you ever going to live the Christian life or learn to think? So it's more, it's less of a problem to reduce the singing and more of a problem to emphasize it. But singing is not just some sort of appendix that you just stick on the beginning of uh, the Sunday morning worship service because that's the way things have been done. Uh, okay, let's look at a little chart I put together to show how these things relate together. You have two different commands, two different places. But the consequences that you read in the following verses are the same. For example, both Ephesians and Colossians have the result of teaching and admonishing one another or teaching one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's in Colossians 3.16b and Ephesians 5.19. Second, there's an emphasis on gratitude in both passages to be thankful uh, for all things. In Ephesians 5.20, uh, we read, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is gratitude that characterizes the believer. That's part of grace orientation. We are grateful for what God gave us. The words grace and gratitude are related to one another. They both come from the same roots in Latin. Uh, The English words do. There's a relationship. If you understand grace, it produces gratitude. If you don't understand grace, it doesn't produce gratitude. Third, it affects relationships. Uh, Ephesians 5.21 summarizes it by saying, Submitting to one another in the fear of God. The fear of God uh, governs everything. We talked about that Tuesday night. The importance of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's more than just uh, respect for God. It is, uh, I can liken it to, when I would uh, disobey my mother, when I w- and some of you knew my mother, and I would disobey my mother when I was a little boy, and she would say, "Well, this is pretty serious. Your father's going to deal with this when you come home." Then I just went to my room and decided that my life was probably going to end that day. Now that's the fear that's comparable to the fear of the Lord. There is a recognition that that there's a respect for that authority, but also a certain dread or terror that's that's hanging there because one realizes the principle of ultimate accountability, and that that, that God can lower 
the boom. So, that's part of this idea of the fear of the Lord. So, we are all to, there is this, this overriding command of submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord because that's related to the whole principle of love in the Christian life. But then, Paul begins to demonstrate how that affects different relationships. First of all, wives are submissive, to be submissive to their husbands. That's Colossians 3.18 and Ephesians 5.22. And I pointed out on Tuesday night, we got into this coming from a different direction, that the command for wives to submit to their husbands is the Greek word hupotasso. And the other words that are used in this context for obedience, and even in English translations, they use different words. You have wives submit to your husbands, but children are to obey their parents, and slaves are to obey their masters. There's a difference there. Wives are to be submissive, hupotasso, uh, children and employees are to be obedient, hupakuo. There's a difference, uh, husbands. Your wife is not to be obedient to you like a child or like um, an employee. She is a, a partner in the uh, divine uh, team that is going forth to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given in marriage. But there's one leader and there's one follower. But the leader and follower relationship is not the relationship of a drill sergeant to an inductee. It is the relationship of two people who are going somewhere. Years ago I developed a doctrine of dance to describe this because it's like dancing. And I don't have time to go through that, but I learned years ago I took dance lessons and I learned a lot of principles. And it was in a class setting where you would switch partners all the time. And I was in a class where everybody got to know each other. We would go out afterwards and go to some of the country western places and we would dance frequently and everybody switched partners. And some of the ladies would tell me, they said, you're really a good dancer, but... You know, I don't like to dance with this guy or that guy because either this guy leads too strongly and he's going to break something or this guy leads too weakly and I'm not sure what he wants me to do and I'm going to run into somebody. So it's this leadership thing. And so, and I would talk to some of the ladies and they would say, well, I don't like to say anything to anybody because some of these men just can't take it. You know, and of course, and what husbands have to learn sometimes is the only one who can tell how you're leading your wife is your wife. She's the only one who can give you honest feedback on how you're doing that. And in the process in a young marriage, you've got to work out these these details of how the husband leads in relationship to the wife and, and following. And you have to re- learn to reach that balance where the husband's leadership is not overpowering the wife, but on the other hand, it's not so weak that she's not sure where you're leading. So, wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands are to be loving their wives as Christ loved the church. There's that qualification on both of them that's very convicting. Wives are to be submissive to the husbands as unto the Lord. That means that, ladies, your relationship to your husband in terms of submission to his leadership is a barometer of how well you're following the Lord. Okay, let's move on to husbands now. Husbands, how you love your wives indicates something about how you understand what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. There's a correlation there. 
Now, that's probably enough for everybody to chew on for a while. That gets terribly convicting after a while because many of us have uh, sin natures where they get in the way. Is that somebody's uh, car alarm going off out there by mistake? Okay, fourth, children obey their parents. Children to be obedient to their parents, Colossians 3.20, Ephesians 6.1. Fathers are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the home. Now, fathers, you men, are you're just catching it tonight. The fathers are responsible. They're not responsible to delegate that spiritual training to the wife. Let me say that again. It goes right past a lot of men. This passage doesn't say fathers delegate the spiritual training in the home to your wife. It's your responsibility. There needs to be that male leadership in spiritual things in the home. Otherwise, you're going to end up producing children like one child uh, that was in my church some 25 years ago said to his mother, well, I don't want to go to church today. I realize the church is for women. Because his father never went to church. It was his mother that always said, so you're setting an example. So men have to be the ones who are teaching doctrine in the home to the kids. Don't delegate that to your wives. And the corollary to that is that men should be the ones who are teaching doctrine to the kids at church. In an ideal situation, we would not have uh, women teaching any kids in prep school. From the youngest age up, we would have a man in every classroom. A lot of times it's good to have team teaching in there. But kids respond well to a man. And to have men in there at the earliest stage just says something about the fact that this is important to men, especially to these uh, young boys that need to have a good male example. And then the last thing that's listed in these passages is the relationship between masters and slaves and that slaves are to be uh, obedient to their masters, and masters are to, uh, Paul says in, in uh, Ephesians 6, 9, And you masters do the same things to them, that is to the servants, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So we have a model of Jesus Christ who is the pattern for almost every one of these uh, relationships. But notice, if all these, what do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If all seven of these consequences flow out of these commands, but we have two different commands. In Ephesians, it's be filled by means of the Spirit. And in Colossians, it's let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you then we can say that those two commands are equivalent to one another. They're a little different. One emphasizes the role of the Spirit. The other emphasizes the role of the Word of God. But they work in tandem. They work together. God uses both. It's not one without the other. People who teach that it's all the Spirit, they end up being mystical or they end up being... uh, a charismatic Pentecostal, and they minimize the significance of the revelation of God because they're always looking for some, some new revelation. Those who emphasize the knowledge of the Word to the exclusion of the role of the Spirit end up always teaching some sort of formalism, some sort of theology, 
just a theological approach to the spiritual life, but they lose the, or, or they end up with just morality. Just do it, do it, do it. And they don't understand that the real dynamic, the real power in the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. You can't have one without the other. They have to work together. Okay, now when we look at Ephesians 5.18, what happened there? Okay, back up. Ephesians 5.18, we have the command, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, both of these words, do not be drunk and be filled with, are present passive imperatives. Now, a present imperative simply means that this is supposed to be a continuous behavior, a continuous habit pattern, a continuous uh, lifestyle pattern. You're not to be drunk with wine, but be filled by means of the Spirit. Now, wine and Spirit are both in the dative case, and they're both instrumental datives. That means that the that noun is the is viewed grammatically as the instrument used to accomplish the mandate. So, wine was used in the uh, festivals of Dionysius or Bacchus to promote a, a, a pagan spirituality. You go out, you have, you're worshiping the god of wine, so you would go out and drink a lot of wine, and then you'd get drunk, and the spirit of the god would enter into you. And so the means to rapport and fellowship with the god was through wine. So Paul is contrasting that methodology, which was very prevalent in the ancient world, with the biblical pattern, which is to be filled by means of the Spirit. It's not that you're getting more of the Spirit. You got all the Spirit you're going to get the instant you were saved. You were indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. You're not going to get any more of Him. Some people get that idea that I get filled with the Spirit, I get more and more of the Spirit, that the Spirit's the content of the filling. But the Spirit is not the content of the Spirit. The Spirit is the means by which the content is put into into the believer. And that's the idea of plerao. It's to, to fill up. It's to fill up our thinking, to fill up our life with the Word of God. So when we compare that with Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. The, the command there is a present active imperative. To dwell in you is in oikeo. Uh, oikeo is the verb to live. Uh, to, uh, oikos is the word for house. Oikeo is the word is the verb for living, and the preposition in that's uh, the prefix there means to live in something or to dwell within uh, something. So it's the same word that's used of the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. But here it's not the Holy Spirit; it's the Word of Christ. It's the content of Scripture. We have to know the principles, the promises of the Word of God. We have to understand the doctrine that's there. We have, to, we have to learn to think about these things. This is why God gave us the Word, is to force us to think about things. We think about the book of Job. And you look at the book of Job, and Job is just, he's just walking through life one day, and wham, he loses everything. Loses his children, he loses his possessions. He loses everything that he has. He, he's not clued in like you and I are in the first part of the first chapter that 
Satan has been up in heaven and God's been pointing out Job saying, hey, have you taken a look at Job yet? He is, he is a prime candidate. He is the most spiritual believer on the planet right now. Have you really looked at him and what a tremendous testimony he is? See, Job isn't aware of anything that's going on in heaven. He is not privy to any special revelation. All he knows is he's just going through life one day just like every other day and out of the blue... He loses everything. In fact, God doesn't start speaking to him and give him any kind of a clue, and he doesn't give him a clue, until the uh, 40 or the 38th chapter, until Job chapter 38. Nothing. He's silent. Why is God silent? That's one of the things that that people are often puzzled about and confused about in Job, is why is it that he goes through all of this and God doesn't speak to him. And there's, he's pleading with God, but there's this long silence before God answers. You see, people, many people want God to answer them right away. We're so self-absorbed. We think that if I go stub my toe, God's got to tell me why immediately. He's, that he's somehow answerable to me. But see, what God wants us to do when we go through life and we face uh, conflicts or adversity or problems... Our, our decisions, he wants us to wrestle with the issue, to think about it, to pray about it, to go to the scriptures and to find patterns in the scripture that relate to what's going on in our own lives so that we can think through what is happening in the scriptures and pull out those principles and apply them to our lives, not in a superficial manner, but in an accurate manner. That's why it's so important for pastors to be training congregations to think, to think critically, to be able to work their way through things, not just to come and just have a superficial feel-good time with, with Jesus, which is what happens in most churches, and most Christians can't think their way out of a wet paper sack. And, and mo- most of us don't want to even if we can't, because that's just the trend of our own sin natures. So we, it's the Word of God that is so important. We have to learn it, study it, learn to think in terms of the Word of God. So we're let, that's how we let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us with all wisdom. And wisdom is practical application of the Word. Uh, the, the wisdom, we always have a tendency to think of wisdom in the Bible in terms of our own uh, Western civilization Greek philosophical background. We think of abstract wisdom, being able to think philosophically, being able to think uh, in terms of logic. I'm not, I'm not demeaning logic, but we think in ter- terms of just intellectual processes when we think of wisdom. We think of somebody that's wise as somebody like Aristotle or Plato or some, some intellectual, somebody who's well-educated. But that's not the, the biblical concept of wisdom at all. The biblical concept of wisdom is grounded in the Old Testament concept of wisdom. And you have your wisdom books like Job and some of the Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And the Old Testament concept of wisdom has the idea of skillfulness, doing something with uh, tremendous skill to produce something of, of beauty, something that is artistic, something that has value. It's the Hebrew word chokmah is the word that's translated, that's translated wisdom. 
And if you go back to some of its earliest uses, you find that in Exodus, after the Jews have come out from slavery there at Mount Sinai and God's given them the blueprint uh, for the uh, tabernacle, that the Spirit of God comes upon two craftsmen, Bezalel and Aholiab, and, and gives them Hulkmah so that they can produce uh, art, uh, the, art, uh, for, uh, the um, articles of furniture and the clothes for the uh, priest, and they can create all of these things so that they will be works of art. They're not just they're not just things that are pragmatically valuable. They were beautiful. They were artistic. They had skill in working with gold and with silver and with precious stones and, and working with the wood and in weaving the fabric. And that's, that word for, for skill there is that Hebrew word wisdom. So wisdom it takes you to a new level. It is being able to take the Word of God, the principles of doctrine, and then to apply them in all the areas of our life so that the product is that which has uh, beauty, that which is of eternal value, that which glorifies God. So the Word of Christ dwells in you richly in all, in all wisdom. Now, that takes us through what we were doing last week, and I hit the Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16 very quickly at the end, so I wanted to flesh that out a little more to make sure we understand this, because this is something that, while you've heard it a lot, it's not always clear, this concept of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Another example I could use, if I've got it up here, is a coffee cup. See, it's full of coffee right now because I had some before class. And that's the content. And too many people think of the filling of the Spirit as we're getting more content, more spirit. But that grammatically would have to use a genitive. It uses a dative. So that indicates it's talking about how the cup gets filled with something. So we put those two things together. All right, now let's back up a minute. Because what we see here is a, a mandate back in Ephesians 5.7 that sets a, a, a structure. We might say that Ephesians 5.7 through 9 is like the center of a, of a, of a, uh, the center point, And we're going, going to have, or the hub of a wheel, and we're going to have three spokes come out from that wheel. The main, main spoke is the spoke that drives down through Ephesians 5 from 5.7 down to 5.18, which is what we just talked about. Then the next spoke is we're going to start going off in, in two different directions, taking principles in Ephesians 5.7 through 9 and seeing how they uh, are played out in parallel passages in the, in the New Testament. So we look at these verses just briefly. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, that is, those who are walking in darkness. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, there's verse 8 points out two things. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's positional. At the instant of salvation, we positionally become light. Colossians tells us that at the instant of salvation we are transferred from the uh, domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. That is positional. You may still be living like you did two days earlier and you probably 
probably did because you haven't learned anything yet, but you have been positionally transferred and your citizenship is now in heaven and you are in the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. And so now the issue is, are you going to walk as children of light? You're not living in heaven, but you live as a citizen of heaven. One of the things that I've noticed as I've traveled internationally is that you can be walking down the streets of Paris or the streets of Almaty, Kazakhstan, or the streets of Moscow, and you can always spot an American. Always. And you do it for two reasons. Number one, they're fatter than anybody else. (laughs) And number two is the way they carry themselves. Americans carry themselves as if they own the world. Because they, nobody's down on Americans. We have a sense of pride and freedom and independence that nobody else in the world has. And it, it comes out in our very carriage. And you and I may not always be as attuned to that, but if you get out of the culture for a while and you're surrounded by a lot of non-Americans, you can spot another American in an instant. It's just how they carry themselves. And you will know that if you're an American in a, even if you're an American in Europe, and you don't think that you dress any different. I can go over to, it used to amaze me. I'd go to Kiev and I'd have clothes that were made there and shoes that were made there and a coat that was made there and a hat that was made there. And I'd walk in some place and they'd say, you're an American. <laughs> they can spot you in an instant. You have no idea, but people spot you that way. See, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your position. You may try to disguise yourself as somebody who lives in the world. You can dress like him, talk like him, act like him, everything else. But guess what? You can't get away from your identity in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And that's what Paul's talking about here. We are light in the Lord, but we have to learn how to walk as children of light. And then there's this parenthetical statement that the fruit of the Spirit is all good, in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's the character that is produced in the child of light. Now, where we're going to go from here is this concept of fruitfulness, the fruit of the Spirit. I pointed out last time, for those of you who weren't here, that there is a textual variant there in Ephesians 5.9 that some of the older manuscripts, three of the uncials, they call them, they're 4th century or so manuscripts, have fruit of the light there. And light seems to make sense in the passage, but I think that that's one of the canons of textual criticism is sometimes the more difficult reading is a correct reading. But the majority of documents, including one of the older uh, uncials, also does not have uh, uh, light there. It has reads pneuma. So I think that's the preferable reading, and it fits into the context, I think, a little better. But... Either way, we're getting to the same principle, which is, which is character. Now, this takes us over to an important passage in Galatians. So, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is one of the most significant passages in... You turn back to the left. Uh, one of the most important passages in all the New Testament for understanding spiritual life. And we're going to jump into the middle of it, then we're going to back out. Because I think that we have to understand what Paul is writing about to the Galatians if we're going to really comprehend the significance of what he says in Galatians 5.16. So we'll just start 
at verse 14 to pick up the context. Paul says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a quote from one of the commandments in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18. Jesus repeats this in Matthew 7.12 uh, and 22.39 and 40. There he's asked, What's the greatest commandment? He said, Number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now I pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we were in the upper room discourse in John 15 that John 15 where he begins with divine analogy ends with a repetition of the governing command related to the whole discourse there which is to love one another and the mandate that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35 to church age believers is to love one another as I have loved you and by this, that is by that love for one another all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now Jesus upped the ante there because in the Old Testament the mandate was to love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor may be a believer or an unbeliever and the standard was just like you love yourself. And and as Paul says about, uh, to illustrate the importance of men loving their wives, he says, but no man loved his own, hated his own flesh, but everyone loves it and cherishes it. Universal principle, everyone loves themselves. Despite the fact that modern psychology says that people have low self-image and they hate themselves, well, they're wrong. The Bible says that every person is born with an overdose of self-love. Self is number one. We're all self-absorbed, and we have to learn to transfer that to other people. So that becomes a standard under the Mosaic Law, because that's the best you can do without the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason Paul is quoting that here is because what's the issue in Galatia? The issue with these Galatian believers is that after Paul went to, went to uh, South Galatia and taught them the gospel, free grace gospel, and told them that the law was ended... A bunch of Judaizers came along behind him, and these were uh, Jews that taught that it's great to trust Christ as your Savior, but it's not enough. You have to have the full gospel. You have to have the Mosaic Law. There has to be an entering into Judaism, the application of the Mosaic Law, so you get all of the benefits uh, of being a Christian. So it was grace plus the law. So Paul deals, has to deal with the issue of the law all the way through this epistle. So that's why he quotes from the law. And he says, For all the laws fulfilled in this one, in this one summation, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. See, there's a problem in the church at Galatia, and that is interpersonal conflicts that are going on. They're not loving one another. He's pointing out the fact that you fail to fulfill the Mosaic Law commandment, which you're saying is the key to spirituality. And now he's going to tell them how to get there. And that's in the next verse. He says, I say then, the implication is, is a contrast, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, the lust of the flesh is what's happening in verse 15. You bite and devour one another. Let, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now, just so you see where Paul's driving here, when he says walk by means of the Spirit, he then has to develop out the contrast between the flesh and the Spirit in verses 17 down through uh, 
18, 17 and 18, and then 19 through 21, it gives you the the manifestations of the characteristics of sin nature controlled people. And then in verses 22 and 23, he gives the manifestation of the production of people who are walking by means of the Spirit. And what's the first thing he says? The first fruit of the Spirit there is love. What's he talking about in this context? He's talking about love. That's a problem in, in the... They're not fulfilling a, a Mosaic law mandate to love one another, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. They're not fulfilling that. So they can't... What he's pointing out is you can't fulfill God's requirements on your own. You can't produce spirituality by morality. Remember, the sin nature is all an unbeliever has. It's hard for us to remember that. Sometimes I get really aggravated at the world around me, and then I just have to remember, well, why am I mad that the world's acting like the world? Why am I mad that these pagan unbelievers are acting like pagan unbelievers? They can only operate according to the, the one nature that they have, which is the sin nature. And that sin nature is the source of everything that comes out in their life. And that produces morality and it produces immorality. And there are some cultures in the world that are incredibly moral. There are some religious systems that have a very strict moral code. And all that just comes out of the sin nature. And we forget that the sin nature produces a lot of morality and religion as well as immorality and uh, dissolution. But what we have here is, is Paul emphasizing that their morality hadn't cut it yet. Because even though they're, they're, they're saying you have to obey the law in order to grow as a believer, the end result is that they're, that they're just uh, eating each other up. And Paul can spot this pretty well because Romans 7, he describes how he was trying to live the Christian life on the basis of the law. And when he finally dealt with the 10th commandment, he realized that he hadn't gotten anywhere on his own efforts, that the flesh just can't produce the uh, produce spirituality. You can't have a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps approach to the spiritual life. It is a supernatural way of life. They can only be, only be produced supernaturally. God, the Holy Spirit's the one that's got to do it. You can't do it on your own. You can't just get up in the morning and say, here, here I'm going to do these ten things today, and that's going to make me a better Christian. But on the other hand, you don't just say, well, I'm going to confess, confess my sins and I'm in fellowship, and it's just going to happen. See, there's that balance between the Holy Spirit. You've got to be in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, but our responsibility is that we have to be applying doctrine, and then the Holy Spirit uses that to produce uh, spiritual growth in our life. Now, to understand this, this passage in 5.16, we have to understand the vocabulary here because it in 5.16, we go through Galatians 1, Galatians 2, that's the first part of the book, Galatians 3, 4, and now we're in 5, and Galatians 5.16 is picking up a thought that he left in Galatians 3.3. From 3.3 to 5.16 is a rabbit trail. But it's a rabbit trail to set them up so they can understand and appreciate Galatians 5.16. Now let's look at the vocabulary here real quick before we go back to Galatians 3.2. He says, I say then, walk by means of the Spirit. The verb there is a present active imperative of peripateo, and it emphasizes to walk step 
by step, to go forward step by step. We are to walk, and the Spirit is in the uh, uh, instrument is an instrumental David dative indicating that we walk by means of the Spirit. And then he says, "And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh." And it uses a double negative here. In English, a double negative means can't, they cancel each other, and you end up with a positive. But in Greek, if you want to state that something is impossible, you do it grammatically. You use a double negative, both the ou and the me. Both of those are words for no or not. And you use a subjunctive mood verb. And so he says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, which basically means when you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. won't happen. just can't do it. So you say, well, wait a minute. How do I sin then? Because you stop walking by the Spirit. Then you just sin. It, it, just, it just naturally falls out. You just like water flowing downhill. You stop because walking by the Spirit demands conscious, moment-by-moment dependence on the Spirit. But It's like when, when Peter is walking on the water. When his eyes are on the Lord, he does just great. But as soon as he took his eyes off the Lord, he sunk. See, that's, what is, that's a great illustration for this. As long as we're consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit, we can't sin. But see, as soon as we take our eyes off of him, we just sink right into the cesspool of the sin nature. It's just automatic. So, taking your eyes off the Spirit isn't the sin, it's the sinking. And then we get into the, then we fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, now we go back to Galatians 3.2. This is where you tie a whole book together. I just love doing this kind of stuff because most of us are so used to pinpoint exegesis and microscopic analysis on each leaf in the forest that we don't know what the forest looks like anymore. So sometimes you've got to stand back, take that big picture. Galatians 1 and 2, Paul deals with the problem of legalism and the gospel. Legalism and the gospel. And he has that famous statement in Galatians uh, 1, 5 through 7. If anybody brings another gospel other than us, let him be anathema. If you add anything to grace, grace in law, grace in works, add anything to, to grace, you nullify grace and there's no gospel. There's no salvation. And he ends up, drives his point home, uh, goes straight to Galatians 2.16, uh, saying, Nevertheless, we know that a man is not justified, how? By the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Notice the vocabulary there. Not by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Now, 1 and 2 deals with the problem of legalism at salvation. But chapters 3 through 5 deal with legalism in the spiritual life. Legalism in progressive sanctification, if you will. So he starts off at Galatians 3, 2, and he says, Okay, now I want you to answer a question. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, which, which was it? And see, what we expect in the answer is for them to say hearing of faith, because he just got through developing this in one, one, I mean, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? And the law here refers to the Mosaic law, 
and the teaching that of the Judaizers that if you really want to have the full blessings of the spiritual life, you have to enter into the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant by virtue of circumcision. Remember, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. So if you're going to really benefit from the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant, then you've got to get uh, circumcised, and then you have to do all of the other rituals related to the uh, Mosaic Law. But Paul goes on to say, and, and we see this contrast, All the, what, what we see here before we go to the next verse, what we see here is a contrast between the spirit, I mean, excuse me, between the, uh, between the, the law and faith and works and the spirit. So that throughout, uh, throughout the book, we're going to see this con- contrast between law versus grace, works versus faith, slavery versus freedom, and the flesh versus the spirit. These are the contrasts. The left column indicates how you try to live your life under religion. Law works. You're enslaved to the flesh. The other side is by grace through faith, we have freedom in the spirit. It all connects. Freedom to grow, freedom to fail. Okay. Galatians 3.3 drives the point home. He says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by means of the Spirit, there's that instrumental dative again. And there are about six of these instrumental datives, are datives with the Spirit in the book of, of Galatians, in the epistle to the Galatians. And every time it has this emphasis on instrumentality. And here's how you see it. It says here, Having begun... By means of the Spirit. How did you begin your Christian life? Regeneration. Who produced regeneration? The Spirit. So the means of regeneration is the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing. See, that hear that word by? That's instrumentality. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? That's how you got regenerated. That's how you got justified by faith alone. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And the word there for perfect is the word epiteleo, which means to perform or to establish, to finish, or to bring something to completion. Now that's the same word that we have, or or it's a form of the same of the word that we have in Galatians five five uh, sixteen, where we read, "Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not what fulfill." That's teleo. All this is is an intensified form of that verb epiteleo. And so it's the same thing. See, we have what do we have here? Spirit, epiteleo, being made perfect or fulfilling, and flesh. Those are the three key words you have over in Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, of the four key words you have in Galatians 5.16, three of them come out of Galatians 3.3. He doesn't explain how to continue in the Spirit until you get to Galatians 5.16. He raises the question here in this rhetorical question to bring home the point that they got saved by the Spirit, but they're no longer trying to live by the Spirit. 
They're trying to do it all on their own. And so then he has to go off and go through all uh, 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 intricate doctrinal development so they can understand why you have to walk by means of the Spirit. And that's how uh, the the, uh, book of Galatians develops. And so he comes to the end and he says, if you want to fulfill the Christian life, then you have to uh, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then in verses 17 and 18, he talks about the warfare that takes place, the flesh, lust against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. There are two things that conflict you. Sometimes if you're a Christian, you think you're, you've got multiple personality syndrome. On the one time you've got one hand, you've got this sin nature that when you let it go, it just really rips. And you think, who is that person? I thought I dealt with this. And it can just really surprise you sometimes. And if your husband or wife's around, it really shock them too. And we just don't want to let that, that go. And there's this warfare. But on the other hand, there is this new person that's being matured and developed by God the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Holy Spirit. And there is this internal struggle. This is the essence of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't going out and fighting the demons and casting out demons, which is how most people want to understand it today. It's the warfare that goes on between your ears. And the center point of that is your volition. Are you going to choose to apply doctrine and walk by means of the Spirit, or are you going to try to live life on your own? So that's the conflict. They war against one another. And then in verse 18, we have our second key phrase, if you are led by the Spirit. Now, to be led by something, what do you have to do? You have to follow it. Leading presupposes a follower. To follow something, you have to have a clear objective path out in front of you. And the clear objective path that is placed in front of us is the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit leads us by the Word of God. And if we're led by the Spirit... We're not under what? The law. That's the problem in Galatia. They're trying to do it by the law, but the law produces bickering, devouring one another, infighting, schisms, division, everybody trying to stake out their own territory and doing their own thing. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, and the Spirit can, can conquer that. Now, how do we tell when we're walking by the flesh? Because you, you, sometimes people don't, do what they say. They talk about how much they love you and how how important doctrine is, but you look at their life and that tells you what dominates. If the works of the flesh are evident. They're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, uh, lewdness. These all have to do with sexual sins. Idolatry, which has to do with worshiping anything other than the Lord. We don't go out and have primitive idols of wood and stone today. We have sophisticated idols of the mind. In Colossians 2, Paul talks about greed or materialism, which is idolatry. You think that things and money are going to give you what only God can give you. That's idolatry. Sorcery is the Greek word pharmakeia. This has to do with the use of hallucinogenic drugs in order to solve the problems in life rather than being dependent upon God. Uh, hatred, mental attitude, sins that produce uh, overt sins of contentions, uh, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, 
uh, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. All of this, these are characteristics of somebody walking by the sin nature. Those who practice such things on an ongoing, continuous basis will not inherit the kingdom of God, which doesn't mean they won't get saved. It means they won't have an inheritance in heaven. That's a message of Hebrews, is that you have to stick with it or you'll uh, lose your inheritance but not your salvation. Verse 22, we have the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, one last thing before we finish. What we see here is one of the most important principles that you find in all the New Testament, and too many people today overlook this. And that is that you're doing one of two things. You are either walking by the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. One or the other. There's no little bit of this. If you have mixed motives, you're walking by the spirit, by the flesh. You know, I remember a seminary professor saying, "Well, you know, I do a lot of things. Part of it's to glorify God, but there's also selfish motives there." Well, then it's all garbage. It's either one or the other, and that's clear from the grammar. If you're walking by the spirit, you cannot. It's impossible to walk by the flesh. These are mutually exclusive. It's either one or it's the other. It's not both. It's not a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. It's one or the other. You're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. You have people walking around today. There's some guys on the radio. They talk about the fact that you can. You, it, 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 these aren't absolutes, but that falls against the grammar. And we see the same kind of thing when we went through Ephesians chapter 5. You're either foolish or you're wise. You're either uh, walking in the light or you're walking in darkness. You're either uh, walking uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit or you're... Uh, you're either redeeming the time or you're not redeeming the time. You're either walking by the Spirit or being filled by means of the Spirit or you're not being fulfilled the Spirit. These are mutually exclusive. So we have to understand how we walk by the Spirit once we've been walking by the flesh. And that's where 1 John 1, nine comes in. Because whenever we get out of fellowship, whenever we start walking by the sin nature, the way to recover is through confession of sin. And the key there is cleansing. Confession of sin cleanses, and you see cleansing all the way through the Bible from the Old Testament to the future millennial temple. If you're going to come into the presence of God, there has to be cleansing. In the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law and in the millennial kingdom in the future, there are sacrifices for cleansing. Because in the millennial temple, you're going to have a fallen priesthood operating. They have to be ceremonially clean before they can go into the temple. In the church age, we have confession. Paul, uh, John talk, calls it confession, 1 John 1, 9. Paul calls it self-examination, and it's examine yourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. James, in uh, James chapter 4, says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's all the same principle of cleansing, and it's, it's, it's important because it restores us to a position where growth can take place and we can go forward. So we'll come back, and in the next lesson, we're going to cover that. But we're going on hiatus after tonight. No Bible class next Thursday night. I'll be, I'll be in L.A. Don't forget that. Don't show up. You'll think the rapture occurred. When I come back from L.A., we're going to start something new for a period of about five or six weeks. I'm going to take some of the material that I used when I went to Connecticut back in July. In light of all this stuff that's going on in the Middle East, I've done a lot more study, and it's time to dig in on the question, does Israel 
have a right to the land? I've been asked this question. In the last week, I've been asked the question five times. So we're going to do an in-depth study Tuesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night for about five weeks on the history and future of Israel. So that's going to, we're going to go into a little break for both Genesis and Hebrews, crank our way through the history and future of Israel, and then probably about mid-November we'll get back on track in Hebrews. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together, this time to study your word, to be reminded of the spiritual dynamic of the Christian life that's God the Holy Spirit who produces growth in us through your word. Let us not forget these priorities. Father, we pray that you would uh, keep us mindful of all that we have studied tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.